0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: A man he had known in Boston, a painter of strange pictures with a secret studio in an ancient and unhallowed alley near a graveyard, had actually made friends with the ghouls and had taught him to understand the simpler part of their disgusting meeping and glibbering For all their laughter, ghouls are a dull lot. Hunger is
0: the fire in which they burn, and it burns hotter than the hunger for power over men or for knowledge of the gods in a crazed mortal. It vaporizes delicacy and leaves behind only a slag of anger
1: and lust.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And those were two uh, quick readings. The first from H.P. Lovecraft's The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath*, And the second from Brian McNaughton's The Throne of Bones, um, available via Wildside Press. And uh, that, by the way, is not only one of my favorite uh, publications that deal with ghouls, it's probably one of my favorite books of all
1: time. Now, do you love it more than the D&D Monster Manual? Well, th-
0: two different types of reads there. I mean, I, I, I do love the Monster Manual uh, for my sort of catalog-oriented uh, monster uh, uh, consideration. And indeed, ghouls have, have long uh, had a cherished role in the Dungeons & Dragons setting.
1: So what is Throne of Bones about?
0: Throne of Bones is a uh, it's a collection of short stories and one central novella uh-huh. set in a dark fantasy setting that's vaguely Roman, vaguely Tolkien esque, I guess, but uh, but has more in common with the, the works of say Clark Ashton Smith and some of the the weird dark fantasy
1: writers of an earlier time. Oh, I should get into that because I've recently discovered that I really dig Roman themes in mm-hmm. in dark literature uh, because mm-hmm. on your and Christian's recommendation, I read the Great Great God Pan, mm-hmm. uh, which has that that fantastic reference to the the statues from ancient Rome of the you know the horrific visage of the goat god, the old goat skin. Yeah. Well, one of the things I love
0: about McNaughton's work is that he he brings this dark seriousness of weird fiction and horror uh, into his writing, but there's also this gallows humor. There's this uh, uh, especially pr- prominent with the ghouls because the ghoul is this uh, creature that in its in the versions that I like the most, they're, they're gross, they're evil, they're sly, but they're also, uh, a little mischievous. They also have this weird black sense of humor about them. Uh, and I feel
1: like McNaughton, it really brings that to life. Well, if you haven't figured it out by now, we're going to be talking about ghouls today and, Sadly, I think this is going to have to be our final October podcast. It has been a great run this month of yeah. monsters and demons and madness. Yeah, we're going to have to sober up in the next episode a little bit and get it, get back on track for the holidays. But, uh, but, yeah, it's been a fun ride. Okay, so ghouls. I think these days when the average person is presented with the concept of a ghoul, mm-hmm. what kind of descriptive features are you going to get? I would say they'd be very generic. I mean, what is a ghoul to us today? It's just some kind of vaguely monstrous creature. In fact, you could even think of ghoul as a broader term into which other monsters fit, like the vampire is a type of ghoul. Well, the word is used that way a lot. I, I have yeah. to admit that I have to bite my
0: tongue to keep from correcting people. When someone refers to a non-ghoul as a ghoul, I want to say, no, that's that's technically not a ghoul. That is just... A ghost. That is somebody in a vampire costume. A ghoul is a specific thing, and uh, you have to uh, use the term appropriately.
1: Yeah, well, I brought that up specifically to provoke you. So, Robert, come on, tell me, what is a ghoul really? All right, so... It's gonna, it's
0: gonna vary and we're gonna get in, before we end up at discussing actual science behind the Google, so yes, that is coming in the second (laughs) half, uh, we're gonna discuss the ancient roots and sort of the modern fictional roots. But in most cases you're looking at this creature that might be unliving or maybe it's just living on the margins of what we think of as, as an actual You know, appropriate member of the natural world. It's very much the monster as outsider motif. Very much so, yeah. Making its home graveyards and places of uh, of of loss and death, and it feasts upon human remains.
1: So it is essentially a cannibalistic scavenger and scavenger in the true sense, in that it sort of dwells at the edges of the camp. You know, you have civilization as the encampment where our activity dwells. You don't find the ghoul in the middle of the city you find the ghoul trailing behind you feasting on what you leave behind
0: right yeah i think in in some cases you have ghouls that are following armies i always love that motif and mm-hmm. would love to see that uh, uh that that used more uh, especially in the like, fantasy settings you have some some sort of army going out to fight a battle as they always do well then surely there are camp followers and there are ghouls right behind them yeah the other type of camp
1: follower yeah <laughs> But based on what we've said so far, it should be clear that the concept of the ghoul has not remained static uh, over time. I mean, it's not even fully unified today. You've got this generic ghoul, and then you've got Robert's very specific ghoul. Mm-hmm. How has the ghoul changed over time, and where did the idea originally come from? All right. Well, let's
0: go back to the the beginnings then, uh, yeah. if not the beginning of, of the universe, uh, because we have to look at pre-Islamic uh Arabic
1: mythology this mythology is so cool and I was so delighted to read it so our main source on this is a paper by Ahmed Al-Rawi called The Mythical Ghoul in Arabic Culture and this was a really fun read
0: Yes, it was. Uh, this was one of my uh, key sources on the How Stuff Works article, How Ghouls Work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and he gets into the, uh, you know, just the original root of the word, word for starters, which is from the Arabic ghoul, or G-H-U-L, that may stem from galu. Which yeah, is the
1: uh, a name of a, an ancient demon, correct? And the Galu played a role in some of their their key literature and mythology. One of them being the the death and rebirth mythology of the god uh, Damuzi, or the Damuzi is sort of equal to Tammuz, which is another god of the ancient Middle East. But the death and rebirth mythology corresponds to the growth and harvest cycle of food crops. So there you can see. Another one of the ways that, uh, that our mythology ties into our way of life, the way we make a living and our, and our basic material concerns inform the stories we tell about, you know, the creation of the world and the behavior of the gods. And, and there you've got just like the crops die every year and then are reborn later in the next season or regrow out of, uh, you know, the, the dead fields of the previous harvest. Mm -hmm. You've got the God uh, Demuzi or Tammuz, who's a vegetation god who is abducted and taken down into the realm of death. and who is the abductor of Demuzi or Tammuz? It's the Galu, the demon, right. And this is
0: fascinating too, because we see the ghoul tied into uh, some of our 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 our
1: earliest and most powerful myths concerning the flow of the seasons, totally, yeah. But following its role in the official mythology of, of ancient Babylon and ancient Mesopotamia, you have this idea of the ghoul emerging as more of a ground-level folkloric creature, you know, that, mm-hmm. that it's mentioned all in all of the standard uh, mythology and folk tales and superstitions of the average person living in the Arabian Peninsula. And Arabic scholars have actually documented the way in which this monster emerged in the thinking of the people.
0: Yeah, Arabic scholars of the 8th, 9th, and 10th centuries, they compiled various Bedouin folk tales involving the ghouls, uh, and many of these found their way into the collection The Thousand and One Nights. And this is key because translations of this book, of course, traveled to Europe in the 18th century. As did the notion of the ghoul, and this is where, uh, as we'll get into later, we see the ghoul emerge in Western culture and uh, in, the, in, eventually, in fictional uh, creations of the late uh, 18th century and most importantly, the 19th, 20th century.
1: Yeah. So I get the feeling it's more the European grave ghoul that ends up becoming the D and D monster. Yes. Though <laughs> um, no, you, you do see at times a. Um, The the modern motifs kind of reaching back into uh, into Arabic uh, folklore for for some uh, additional depth. Yeah, I figure we should mention a couple of these pre-Islamic ghoul accounts because they are fascinating. Mm -hmm. So one of the stories that Al-Rawi tells in his paper is that uh, it's recounted according to the scholar Al-Masudi. And he writes the following. Arabs before Islam believed that when God created genies from the gusts of fire, he made from this type of fire their female part, but one of their eggs was split in two, hence the Kutrub, which looked like a cat, was created. As for the devils, they came from another egg and settled in the seas— other evil creatures such as the Marid inhabited the islands, the Ghoul resided in the wilderness, and the Silwa dwelt in the lavatories and waste areas, and the Hama lived in the air in the form of a flying snake. So these are some awesome monsters oh, yes. that are being described here. I love the idea of a lavatory and waste area monster. Yeah, because that's, again, that's a, it's a wonderful place for a haunting. That's a wonderful borderland, right? Well, it's a place where you're vulnerable and yeah. usually where you're isolated, right? Mm-hmm. Where do you have to go off by yourself? Yeah, and that's where you might encounter the supernatural. Um, but then, of course, there is another source... That says that, quote, the devils wanted to eavesdrop on heaven, so God threw meteors at them, whereupon some were burnt, fell into the sea, and later turned into crocodiles, while others dropped onto the ground and changed into ghouls. So there you've got a ghoul origin and a crocodile origin at the same time. They're essentially uh, siblings, huh? Um, And plenty of the other stories also depict the ghoul as a shapeshifter that's able to disguise its appearance. Mm -hmm. Uh, This appears to be a common feature. Other common features are that the traditional Arabic ghoul is often female in appearance. And I thought this was interesting. It can be killed with a good chop from a sword, and if I'm reading this right, it sort of makes it different from the vampire, the werewolf, and these other monsters, which can often only be killed through magically appropriate means. Like you have to have the you know the one magic bullet that is known to kill the monster, as right. to be silver or holy water or stake through the heart or or whatever it is for that monster individually. The ghoul can be killed by violence but it ha- it does have to be a very mighty and strategic form of violence because an interesting development on the myth is that according to some versions the ghoul would only die if you hit it with one mighty blow with a sword because uh, yes. if you hit it more than once then you would have to hit it a thousand times more before it would die ha huh. yeah that's so you had to time your one strike <laughs> you know you had to get the one really good one in Well, that I could see that making sense in terms of uh, the creature. You sort of have to get
0: that surprise hit in. You got to get that um, to put it in D and D terms. You have to get that uh, that that surprise attack bonus, right? Right. And if you don't, then you're going to have to apply a lot of smaller attacks to win. I've also read, uh, and this would of course be post-Islamic uh, uh, interpretations mm-hmm. uh, but uh, in, in these interpretations you could also at least drive the ghoul away with readings from the Quran
1: yeah that definitely comes up later where you can use the holy or spiritual power of of a of a good spiritual force by like saying the name of Allah or by quoting from the Quran and, and that will tend to drive it into remission essentially it will say no why did you do this to me but you can also whack it with the sword as long as you whack it really good just once. <laughs> now, speaking of uh, Islamic traditions, you're probably wondering, what did Muhammad have
0: to say about ghouls? Well, Muhammad's words on the existence of ghouls vary depending on which text you read. Yeah. So the Quran does not mention them at all. That's important to stress
1: the, here. The Quran does mention jinn, but yes. not, not ghouls.
0: Yes. But contested references do pop up in the Hadith. Uh, that's a book of Muhammad's attributed acts and sayings.
1: Yeah, so there there are definitely conflicting bits of scholarship about what Muhammad had to say about ghouls, if anything. Right. But to quote al-Rawi again on the the people who do say that the, the prophet had something to say about ghouls, what he said was, quote, ghouls are the demons or enchantresses of genies that hurt human beings by eating or spoiling their food or by frightening travelers when they're in the wilderness. And in order to avoid their harm, one can recite a verse from the Holy Quran or call for prayer since they hate any reference to God. Huh. And that first part mentions something about the wilderness. This is something that pops up again and again. In the literature about the about the ghouls, uh, you know these ancient ghoul folk tales, is y- you don't expect to encounter them in the middle of civilization. There, you encounter them on the road in the wilderness between places. They're in that intermediary world. I like too how this mentions um, eating and spoiling of food. It's
0: tied uh, inherently to our. Survival via consumption of food and the potential uh, violation of that food and and, and just into
1: general um, ideas of purity and cleanliness in our food. Yeah. Well, I mean, you certainly don't want something that eats corpse flesh getting into your pantry. Right, yeah. They're just going to tear it up in there, obviously. But you may have noticed that so far there hasn't been a whole lot, if anything, about the eating of corpse flesh. That's right. And that's something that we'll get into in a bit. Now, in some accounts, uh, Muhammad dismisses uh, ghouls as
0: completely non-existent. Mm -hmm. In others, he gives advice on banishing them. His companion, though, Abu Asad al-Sadi, takes a more balanced approach. And he states that ghouls lived in the pre-Islamic past, but that Allah no longer permits them to exist. Meanwhile, uh, there's also a legend that Umar bin al-Khattab, another of Muhammad's companions, put a ghoul to the sword on the road to
1: Syria. Yeah, this was great. So the story goes, a female ghoul stops him on the road and asks him, where are you going? And Umar says, it is none of her business. And (laughs) then she does the move from the exorcist, where she turns her head all the way around. That's really part of the story. It said that. Uh, And then he splits her down the middle with the sword. All right. So single, I'm guessing single blow there. Right. He does it right. He hits her with the one blow. But then later he comes back and the body is gone. Ah. So either she survived or the other ghouls came and took her body away or or, or some sort of magical disappearance. Yeah. Yeah. So so if we consider the ghoul that eats human flesh a kind of perversion of the idea of corpse cannibalism what is the ghoul that eats ghoul flesh it's like meta cannibalism
0: yeah yeah i mean and it certainly ties in with uh with how we see scavengers behave towards their own sometimes mm-hmm. and that's that's key here because although ghouls were sometimes associated with scavenging hyenas in Ara- in arabic text yeah,
1: they really don't have this grave ghoul association where they're going to Come and take your dead loved ones from the graveyard after the funeral and eat their corpses. Yeah, this particular detail, according to Al-Rawi, seems to emerge from Anton
0: Golan's French translation of the Thousand and One Nights in the early 18th century. So not only did uh, Golan take liberties in his translation, he even introduced and allegedly created a female character named uh, Amina who uh, prefers the company of graveyard ghouls to that of her new husband. Oh no. Yeah. So this and you could see this definitely appealing to some of the gothic sensibilities of the time in Europe, right? Yeah. But this inaccurate translation was hugely influential in the Western world and uh, and in you know informing their the Western world's understanding of the Middle East. So inspiring the work of William Beckford, the 18th century author of the uh, Arabian themed novel Vathic, and uh, the folkloric studies of uh, of another individual named uh, Sabine Baring Gould. So we see, so that's interesting, I and mean, you have this rich tradition of ghouls yeah. with, in in the Arabic traditions. Just some wonderful details there. Already a fabulous creature. But then it gets tweaked a little bit, either in you know mistranslation or creative embellishment of yeah. the myth as it tra- it translates into uh, European uh, fiction and, and folklore and European understandings of the Middle East.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating this evolution of the ghoul meme because if if you trace the ancient pre-Islamic Arabic ghoul up through the way the grave ghoul comes to be understood in European culture. What's the common thread there? Mm -hmm. I mean, you've seen the evolution, basically, of a word—the word "ghoul." But is there a common thematic element that remains the same throughout it, despite just general monstrousness or malevolence?
0: Yeah, I I think it works. Like, I feel like that the ghoul, as as we have seen it and discussed it in uh, in pre-European traditions, I feel like it's able to take on the mantle. Of of corpse eating, rather rather honestly, like that, it it adds another dimension to it, and certainly <laughs> tweaks it in a new direction, but not in a direction that feels uh, out of character with uh,
1: its origins. Okay, I can accept that. N- now, would, if we look elsewhere in the world, do we find myths of creatures that are similar to the ghoul? We do. Uh, it's,
0: yeah, it's definitely worth noting that even if. The original Arabic ghouls didn't eat corpses. They have peers in Asian folktales that do. So in uh, the Tamil mythology of India, they have uh, these shaggy-haired creatures known as the pay who sought out human battles so as to lap blood from the open wounds of the dying. Uh, still other ghouls emerge in uh, 8th century, uh, in the 8th century Tibetan Book of the Dead, which details the, the Buddhist journey through death and into uh, the realms beyond death uh, uh, via reincarnation. Okay. Um, here, in the dreamlike state known as Bardo, uh, the departed soul encounters the, the, the Pisashid ghouls, and these are fierce female beings with bestial heads and an appetite for bones and viscera.
1: Wow. That's interesting. Now another thing that we see commonly here is that in these early visions, the ghouls are very often female, like mm-hmm. explicitly described as female in appearance, whereas the ghouls that I think we think of today tend to be either sort of um androgynous tending toward masculine or or fully male.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think there is a definite tendency to to generate a masculine idea of the ghoul in Western culture. Though though some of my favorite uh, uh, books on the matter definitely have female ghouls.
1: Now, in the conclusion of his article, uh, uh, Al-Rawi, he says that the the ghouls may have been inspired just by, you know, things that people actually did encounter in reality, like people with various birth defects. Yeah, particularly things like cleft palate,
0: cleft lip, um, distortions of the mouth and and facial features, you know, which... Sadly, do, and um, can and do interfere in our interpretation of, of a, of an individual substance.
1: Yeah, I think this is a common feature you see in the origins of monster legends. This is often hy- hypothesized that we would just see someone that, uh, that had, you know, some kind of atypical way of looking. Mm hmm. And that we would interpret that as, well, you know, this person is cursed or evil or there, there's something wrong with them. They didn't have the light of modern medical science to just say, no, they're a person like anybody else. Yeah, very much in keeping with the
0: changeling traditions uh, that you find in Europe, right? That surely that this year your, your actual child was taken away by fairies and this is the, the goblin that's left in, in its place. Yeah. Now, on top of that, Victorian adventurer and uh, Middle Eastern scholar and just all-around fascinating individual, uh, Captain Sir Richard Francis Burton, uh, he explained the Arabic ghoul as a mythical creature that embodies human fears and taboos concerning graveyards. Check. Desert yeah. wastes. Check. And cannibalism, and ah. specifically survival cannibalism, if we're to tie it into uh, other myth cycles, that uh, such as the Wendigo, that did definitely have such a strong, resonant place in, uh, in uh, the native peoples of North America, because it's tied with that fear of survival cannibalism uh, as, a ne- as a possible necessity during uh,
1: harsh winters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can see a very strong sort of a theme emerging, which is that all of these disparate things are sort of united by the sense that they're playing on fears of the periphery, the edges, the outside, and the taboo, mm-hmm. as, as many monsters do. Yes.
0: So, as previously mentioned, Thousand and One Night serves as this cultural bridge, and it's kind of a slightly distorted cultural bridge by which uh, Middle Eastern ghouls migrate into Western fictional traditions. And in addition to the the above examples, uh, in the original Arabic text, the ghouls of uh, Thousand and One Nights are also vile tricksters. And depending on uh, again those translations, they may be flesh eaters. Uh, they kidnap victims. They they lure lustful men to their doom by taking on the guise of beautiful women. Again, that shapeshifting motif. Oh yeah, Th-
1: that's a common thing you see in the Arabic stories. Is that there's a like a female ghoul hanging out by the road and calling men to come over and see her. Yeah. And come, then, course, over, come over and see me sometime in right. desert ways. And, of course,
0: that's a wonderful, uh, a, a, a classic monster trope that we continue to to play with uh, today. Yeah. Um, but then, of course, also sometimes they break into your storerooms and they munch on your dates. Right. I think that's what
1: Muhammad was mentioning.
0: Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, some of the key early adapters, if you will, to Gouldom uh, were Poe, Lord Byron, and Hans Christian Andersen. What? Yeah, they all made mention of Ghoul's... Um, in uh, the in the 19th century, in their writings, what what did Hans Christian Andersen write about ghouls? Um, I, I, it's just in one particular story, and I don't think they play a huge role, but they they pop up. Like clearly, uh, they were you know one of the many magical creatures he was uh, so privy to. And they're so, just
1: in the mix. They're in the cultural miasma. Yeah, yeah. So they end up picking them
0: up, playing with them to a certain degree. And then you have a new generation come along uh, in the 20th century. Uh, Lovecraft, of course, H.P. Lovecraft, who we've mentioned, other weird fiction authors of the the day, including Clark Ashton Smith, who wrote some wonderful ghoul uh, stories. Uh, they c- continue to cultivate ghouldom in a new dark form, tying it in with some of the uh, the, the, the dark weird motifs that uh, are a part of weird fiction. Uh, particularly in Lovecraft's case, you have Pickman's Model. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah,
1: uh, which you read, uh, correct? Yeah, yeah. Robert told me before this episode that I should read Pikmin's model, and I did. It was very interesting. And it also, one of the interesting things about it to me is that it is different from all these other stories that, uh, where we've been saying that the ghoul is sort of on the periphery as a scavenger on the outside trailing behind the camp or whatever. In this story, the ghoul emerges as a feature of a sort of, uh, shadowy meta city, uh, a Mm -hmm. shadowy city within a city, that there's a part of the city. That the narrator is taken to by Pickman, who's this creepy artist who draws creepy things, or I guess paints creepy things. And they they go to his house in this bizarre part of the city, uh, where suddenly there are tunnels going back to seemingly maybe back in time to Salem and witchcraft and, mm-hmm. and monstrous things maybe emerging from them. And it's right there in the heart of Boston in that story, right? Yeah, it is.
0: There's very much this feeling that the ghoul kind of resides in the city's history as well as in its architectural history. So there's a sense that the bodies that the ghouls feed on are not even current graves. They're kind of feasting on the past. So, Pigments Model is a key work in the Western Ghoul, and we see here that it really gets its uh, claws
1: into our, our horror literature. Yeah, there are several key scenes describing, well, describing paintings of ghouls eating the dead flesh of human beings. Right. And, uh, and from here, uh, this spreads, uh,
0: Lovecraft, of course, is, is hugely influential, and so his idea of ghouls spreads into various works of fantasy and dark fantasy. Again, Clark Ashton Smith, Brian McNaughton, Neil Gaiman, uh, more recently, and you even see ghouls show up in the Harry Potter series, though not that convincingly.
1: Now, if we're gonna go with the D&D model, what would you, what type of creature would you say lord voldemort is 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 he more of a lich or he's kind of got some ghoul features right then he
0: i feel like he's a he's a variation on the lich you know okay like what with the whole uh storing
1: of the soul and the various horcruxes yeah yeah yeah. but he
0: has a, a ghoulish appearance
1: for sure yeah now i was curious i didn't have time to look this up before we recorded but i i just had the thought um what about the Nazgul in Tolkien? Do you think that the ghoul in Nazgul, meaning the the Nazgul or the Ring Wraiths in Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. you know, these evil spirits who are uh, obsessed with with finding the Ring of Power and they want to grab it and bring it back to their master? Uh, and and I believe the word Nazgul means Ring Wraith, and mm-hmm. so the ghoul there being some kind of evil spirit. I, I wonder if Tolkien was inspired by the Arabic word ghoul there.
0: Well, you know, I'm not a, that much of a Tolkien scholar, so we have to—I'd <laughs> have to, to call out for our listeners to see if anybody uh, has any insight on that. But, and, and I, I don't know to what extent uh, he was interested in Arabic culture and Arabic languages. I know he was, he was certainly into language, language, and it seems completely plausible that he would have been familiar with uh, with these tales. So. I, I would, if I had to, to bet on it, I would say, yeah, he surely the Nazgul has too has its origins in pre Islamic uh, Arabic folklore. Okay, and of course we continue to see great works of far uh, and other fictions that involve the the ghoul. Catelyn R. Kiernan has a great um, has a great novel called Daughter of Hounds that deals with ghouls. I'd recommend that. Oh. There's a wonderful old weird tale short story called Far Below by Robert uh, uh, Barber Johnson. And this involves ghouls in the New York subway uh, system. Uh, That's a great read if you can find a copy. Oh, man, that does sound great. Yeah, and uh, in comics and TV, we see plenty of examples there. There's a wonderful episode of Tales from the Crypt called Morning Mess that involves uh, a, a shadowy organization that uh, seems to be very interested in, in supplying uh, burial for um, vagrants and transients who die. But, of course, there's a, a ghoulish uh, secret at the heart of it.
1: Oh, no. Now, I recall a particular Tales from the Crypt comic uh, segment that I read years ago that was about, it was about a tale of a sad, tragic tale of young lovers and the, the woman dies uh-huh. and she, her body is entombed in a crypt and then her lover is locked in the mausoleum with her, like locked into oh. the crypt and, uh, he cannot get out and he, he's trying to escape and he can't and then much later the police find him and they find that he actually survived in there for a long time. And the ominous ending is that they find he died of formaldehyde poisoning. Oh, well, that's that's a pretty good one. I, yeah, I, I need to go back and read some of these old tales from the crypts. I don't have a lot of experience with the actual comics, but uh, oh, I haven't read many either. Yeah. it's uh, a one of, that's one a friend of mine recommended to me.
0: Oh, excellent! I'll have, yeah. to, I'll have to look that up. So. Yeah, we made, and we mentioned uh, Dungeons and Dragons already that uh, the ghouls have have a long played a role in, in in Dungeons and Dragons. They've always been in the monster manuals, both ghouls, and I believe, and they also have a, a like an advanced version of the ghoul called a ghast, and then variations on ghouls that pop up in different uh,
1: add-ons. So, so tell me, just basically, what does your encounter with the ghoul look like? It's just basic sword fodder, like it's not very not um, very tough the The standard
0: ghoul isn't particularly tough or intelligent. The ghast is a little more potent and uh, and a little more yeah and a little tougher to encounter. But they're not uh, they're not high end monster encounters unless of course you're encountering them in significant numbers. Yeah.
1: But despite all this, the ghoul has never really, as you I think eloquently put it in our notes, exploded into the mainstream. At least not in the way that the vampire or the werewolf or or even Frankenstein's creature has. You know, we never got the Universal monster movie of the ghoul.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there've been occasional films that I think there, there was even a Boris Karloff film titled "The Ghoul." But, oh, really? Yeah, but it's not particularly uh, in keeping. Uh, obviously, with the
1: I've never seen it.
0: <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's just I guess the ghoul is not that sexy. The ghoul, the the, the ideas that it represents are maybe maybe not as comfortably. Uh, Contemplated as that of vampires and
1: werewolves. Well, certainly not as sexy. I mean, that's the thing about if you go back and watch Bela Lugosi's Dracula, it's it's very slick. You know, it's Dracula is kind of sexy. He's not gross and monstrous. The ghoul is disgusting. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think that's the big reason. But it continues to be, it's kind of like one of those bands that never really, you know, takes off into stup- superstardom, but they always have their following, right? Yeah. So I would say that, yeah, you know, ghouls are kind of like the, maybe they're the fish of the monster world, right? Like, not everybody's gonna have a lot of familiarity with them or be able to tell you what their top ten hits are, but they have a hardcore following and they're not going away. <laughs> even if, you know, some of the details about them, you know, are a little ambiguous. So we've discussed the folkloric, mythological, fictional history of the ghoul from ancient pre-Islamic Arabic traditions on up into
1: the latest edition of the Dungeons and Dragons Monster Manual. Yeah, but of course, the eating of dead flesh is not merely the stuff of fantasy. I mean, this is a this is not only something you commonly see in the natural world. It is a standard way of making a living for many organisms.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've discussed uh, on this show before in the past. We've discussed basic cannibalism as it occurs in nature. As a very, when you strip away all the human complications, it makes a certain economic sense. Sure, you're just talking about flesh. You're talking about energy. You're talking about absorbing the
1: energy back into a viable being. I think a question we should keep in mind uh, throughout the course of this part about science is the question of why cannibalism is such a taboo among humans. Uh, And and obviously, I mean, it would be quite clear why violent cannibalism is. So, like, you kill somebody and eat their flesh. But I'm talking about the kind of cannibalism that, as you just alluded to, makes a kind of basic energy economics sense. Like, your loved Mm -hmm. one dies... And then we say, no, no, you will not eat their flesh. Right. Well, I feel like the the big theme here, and we'll discuss
0: another possible theme in a minute, but the big one, of course, ties right into uh, what we've previously talked about uh, concerning uh, natural burial versus uh, modern burial traditions is that, we just get wrapped up in the idea of that corpse still being the person that it was.
1: Yeah, yeah. So we did definitely allude to this in our episode called Human Remains, Past, Present, and Future. But there, there is the idea that we can never fully accept that the dead body of the person we loved is... Not in some sense still that person. Not in some sense still, oh, in a way alive, and thus in that way, there really among humans at least may not be such a thing psychologically as nonviolent cannibalism. Like if you, if your cousin dies, and you rationally know you're no longer hurting him by eating his body, you just can't, on some level, accept that you're doing violence mm-hmm. to his flesh and it seems like you're doing a harmful thing.
0: Okay, so let's go on a journey. Okay. Traveling back uh, down the highway of human evolution and human ascension. Uh, A road that as we travel, you're going to see some
1: uh, rather ghoulish characters standing along the wayside. (laughs) I think if we look back into early human history, we can see both of the major aspects of the ghoul, both the scavenger aspect and the cannibalistic aspect. Okay, so we're going to travel back. 2.5
0: million years to the the dawn of the Pleistocene epoch. And you'll find our Australopithecine ancestors scrambling to diversify their diets
1: in a changing world. Okay, so these are people who are... They're not living a comfortable existence like us, supported by agriculture and supply to stores of food. They're living at the edge. Right. At the edge of hunger, they, they need to find food constantly. Yeah. And uh, according to the 2014
0: paper, Humans and Scavengers, the Evolution of Interactions in Ecosystem Services, this published in the journal Bioscience, we're specifically talking about increasing uh, seasonality in uh, precipitation in the African savannas. And this is forcing our uh, Australopithecine ancestors to diversify, again, to cope with uh, the developing seasonal bottleneck in fruits and other soft plant foods. So it's becoming harder to make a living gathering plant matter. Exactly. So you end up with two approaches, two uh, responses to this bottleneck. Okay, you have um, some early hominids that turn to seeds and roots. They start diversifying in that direction. Uh, the roots are going to be available year-round. Uh, seeds can be uh, uh, can be acquired uh, in different seasons as well. That doesn't sound very good to me. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what's uh, what this other group decided, and they're the ones who decided to try out some of the meat to be found on large vertebrate carcasses. But they're not hunting. Because we're not like hunting. Hunting is a is a technological advancement that also hadn't come along yet.
1: Well, I mean, think about all of the deficiencies human ha- human beings have as natural hunters. I mean, mm-hmm. We don't have uh, teeth and claws and powerful jaws like a lion or a tiger or something like that. Uh, we do have smarts and we can make tools, but w- we can't just chase down a gazelle and rip it apart the way that these other large predators can.
0: And that's what these early meat eaters had to do. They had to. They had to wait. They had to watch. They had to look for the signs. They have uh, vultures in the sky, or or the movements of known predators, or larger known scavengers.
1: Strategic meat acquisition.
0: Yeah, find find where they're going, and try and either pick up the pieces afterwards, or try and steal it. Again, these are scavengers. Yeah, our, our, their whole past is scavenging, and so if they're going to start enco- encompassing uh, meat into their diet as well then they're going to try to do it through scavenging strategies.
1: Yeah, and you can even see this in uh, what scientists say about the most ancient human tools we've discovered, because what do you think the first human tools are? Obviously, what would come to your mind is hunting tools, right? They're, yeah, uh, you think about uh, like spears, spears. Yeah, yeah, spears, axes, stuff like that to kill animals with uh and obviously if we do go back to certain periods we do find ancient hunting weapons but a lot of what you find appears to be early tools used for the processing of animal carcasses so not necessarily for the killing but for for processing for like a butchery
0: yeah like very much the idea of finding the body and needing to get that marrow out right trying to get some meat out of this uh this dead large uh vertebrate uh that can that you can that can sustain you Uh, But you're going to have to use your
1: tools to do it. Yeah, it's a smart strategy and hominids are not the only animal species that has ever tried it, but yeah, you you look to what the predator has already done and then you engage in kleptoparasitism. Yes. You, the the stealing parasitism, you you take advantage of their work and claim it for your own. Yeah, and if you take it to the
0: next level, you engage in confrontational scavenging. So, this is uh and this is something we still see to this day. Uh in in rare instances, and, and there, these are the kind of traditions that, you know, may not survive too much longer in our modern world. But there are, uh, Cameroonian villagers who continue to steal meat from lion kills to this day. I mean, it's a smart strategy, Yeah, it totally makes sense. The lion has done the work, and if you can bluff your way in just long enough, to, just to scare them away enough to where you can cut off a little bit of the kill and run off with it, and then instead of, hopefully, instead of coming after you, they'll just return to their own kill to harvest the rest of the meat for themselves. Yeah. You
1: yeah. Can, you can bribe the lion with the work it's already
0: done. Yeah, bribe it with the work it's already done, steal just enough to where they're not going to miss it and and come after you. Now, over time, this eventually develops into more powerful hunting skills, right? We develop yeah. the technology and the strategies and the, the, the brain power to not only drive away the hunters, but to usurp their role as hunters. And uh, according to that paper uh, published in uh, the journal Bioscience, quote, the close association between human hunters and vertebrate scavengers probably played a role in the diversification of cultural services. So this is interesting because we're all used to these motifs of the the early hunter and gatherer, right? Yeah. And we tend not to think about scavenging too much in that scenario. We don't think about the ghoulish history of human ascension and the idea that there was a time where we're essentially hyenas, we're essentially vultures, and maybe that's one of the reasons that the 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 the, uh, the idea of the ghoul still is so repellent because it does mirror. Uh, our own history
1: well there is something that we find inherently distasteful about scavenging as a way of life right like I, I think that is very common among humans to sort of see it as essentially ignoble or unchivalrous almost mm-hmm. like it is honorable to hunt and kill your food you know that's a sort of uh, an admirable struggle, but there's something just kind of like gross and unpleasant about scavenging and looking through, you know, trash piles and dead bodies and yeah, stuff or to even, see what you even can eating roadkill. Right, that's probably one of the modern ideas.
0: Yeah, that it's just you tend to just attribute that yeah. to like, oh, that's a screwed up hillbilly thing to do to eat the deer that you hit with your car. But really, why? Like, if you ran over a deer with your car and you're into eating deer meat and the and you have the means to process it. That's still a a fresh kill. It's just as fresh as the one that the the dude shot from a deer stand, so
1: why not? Now, if we think of these ancient hominids as, in a way, very economically conscious, essentially. They, They are making maximum use of what skills and tools they have to get energy resources from their environment. And the main way they find to do that is scavenging, even maybe kind of dangerous and scary forms of scavenging. Did they ever turn that scavenging impulse inward?
0: Yeah, that's the big big question, right? Because it leads into into concerns about well, how does this scavenging creature, this creature that has that has learned the value of meat, has adapted to survive via meat, and then suddenly suddenly it puts new um, it applies new meaning to their own dead. Yeah. Suddenly, hey, I could go out and I could try and steal this body from a lion, but here's a dead member of our own community. It's made out of meat. I can eat that meat, and it's also Worth noting too that eventually as we develop technologies to, to better process and cook meat, we're better able to deal with uh, some of the disease uh, issues that are uh, inherent uh, with scavenging, right? Right, we reduce some of the natural risk. Yeah. But why not? Why not turn to that meat, especially if I haven't really built up as much uh, you know, human cultural uh, taboos regarding the consumption of that food?
1: Yeah, and I think some scientists think
0: that we did make that leap. Yes, according to paleontologist uh, Isabel uh, Caceres, our ancestors likely turned to cannibalism due to lack of resources and competition for territory at critical points in their ascension. So you, it, basically, we're talking again about survival cannibalism. You find ways to supplement your diet. When it gets tough, you can you can deal with you can scavenge for meat, but then what happens when that runs low? That's when you turn to your own dead and you
1: give it a try. Yeah, what did ancient hominids and the Donner Party have in common? Yeah, they they knew what made economic sense. Yeah, and it makes sense. We've talked about the economy
0: of cannibalism. It's widespread throughout the animal kingdom, including among human and non-human primates. Because sure, killing and eating your own kind tends to interfere with the long-term genetic mission of just reproducing and making more of yourself, but it
1: works like a charm in terms of short term survival nevertheless as i mentioned before there is this intensely strong taboo against it we we just do not feel generally like this is an okay thing to do mm-hmm. uh, Or at least i can <laughs> i can speak for myself and say that no that does not seem like an okay idea and it i think to most people seems that way
0: yeah like even if the sandwich is really good and you're like oh man this is, this is such a good sandwich in the back of your mind, you're thinking, but this, this used to be
1: Ron, Right? And now I'm eating Ron as a sandwich, and that's yeah, really Ron, messing it up for oh, me. Oh, he's so savory. <laughs> uh, but uh, there may be reasons for this taboo beyond what we mentioned before. So earlier we were talking about the idea that it's just hard to shake the feeling that the flesh of a dead person is not still in some way able to be harmed or in some right. way still that person but there could possibly be selection pressures that favor a taboo against cannibalism, right? Yes, and this is, uh, this
0: is where we end up talking about kuru disease and, all, and, uh, and discussing prions. So what are prions? Well, prions are abnormal proteins that induce irregular protein folding in brain cells. And this construction leads to flawed brain tissue resulting in progressive and incurable brain damage. Uh, one of the the most uh, notable examples here, certainly for our purposes uh, in this podcast, is Kuru disease, which is found. In New Guinea, among the foray people, it's a, a rare breed of uh, of disorder caused by the by this type of prion. Uh, also, it's known as the the shaking disease. Uh, that's what Kuru means, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes referred to as the laughing disease because scientists observed fits of hysterical laughing among those afflicted.
1: Yeah, and so obviously it is a it is a fatal, very terrible disease that you do not want to get at all, but. What scientists observed is that it only really tends to happen, uh, though it's comparable to some other prion diseases mm-hmm. like, uh, like CJD, but it, uh, only really seems to happen in the Foray tribe of, of New Guinea. And this is related to, uh, the, some of the rituals practiced by this tribe of Indo-cannibalism, which right. sort of flips the script on cannibalism like we've been talking about. I mean, from our cultural perspective, We've got this taboo on cannibalism because we think of it as a kind of disrespectful or harmful thing to do to the remains of a person. But it's not necessarily thought of by everyone in that way. I mean, this is a, a sort of respectful cannibalism, the, the the loving incorporation of a dead loved one's flesh back into your society in the form of food.
0: Yeah, taking your dead loved one back into yourself as food, into your body, taking their body and spirit into yourself. So it, in their beliefs and their traditions, it endocannibalism takes on a form of, uh,
1: uh, of beauty, really. Yeah, so this, in a way that might seem strange to a lot of people, could be a, a beautiful way of looking at the consumption of human flesh, except that it did have this very... Very unfortunate medical consequence of, of leading to kuru disease, right? And doctors first uh, first really focused in on this in the
0: 1950s when kuru was is popping up among the foray tribes people, decimating whole villages. And the scientists quickly discovered that the only way to acquire the disease was through the consumption of contaminated brain tissue. So they just had to shut down the uh, the funeral rites and that is how they they were actually able to uh, to stop the spread of kuru disease among the, the, these tribes people
1: yeah, but the obvious idea here is if it is possible to get an extremely dangerous fatal disease by consuming in this case i believe the brain tissue of your dead loved ones but possibly there could be other cases where consuming the dead tissue of human beings is a disease threat would there eventually be an evolutionary selection pressure against cannibalism would, well that, would there be enough of a pressure
0: that, that is an argument is often made however uh, I did find uh, some work by uh, medical researcher Michael Alpers and he points out that, that the widespread presence of genes protecting against prion disease suggests that human endocannibalism was fairly common for thousands of years ah. so we see the genetic legacy of continuous uh, endocannibalism the continuous consumption of human dead. Uh, enough to where we build up a certain amount of resistance to these prions.
1: So why do we need a gene for endocannibalism taboo if we can just have a gene for endocannibalism? I don't know shield <laughs> that, that makes it, it safe.
0: It's basically like finding a cannibalism cookbook in your on your friend's bookshelf. Yeah, and then confronting. <laughs> why would them with you it? have this if you didn't? Yeah. Right, right. It's like clearly, clearly
1: that we know what the secret ingredient is in the meatloaf now. So it seems like there are some lines of evidence indicating that in the past humans were eating some 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 grave flesh.
0: Yeah, they, I I believe so based on uh, the the research material we were looking at. Scavenging, just scavenging for dead meat, is a part of our evolutionary history, and so is the consumption of our own dead. And therefore, the the idea of the graveyard ghoul is very much uh, a dark reflection of if not who we are today, then at least of who we have been as a species in the past. The scavenger. Yes. So think about that the next time you uh, you see uh, an episode of, uh, I don't know, Supernatural, I think sometimes has ghouls, or you watch an Old Tales from the Crypt uh, episode, or read
1: some delightful fiction that involves the ghoul myth. Well, unfortunately, as I said at the beginning, I think this episode is going to have to conclude our October lineup of creepy and monstrous content. But please keep listening, because even after October, we will continue to serve up to all of you intellectual scavengers some tasty and sometimes forbidden morsels. Indeed.
0: And in the meantime, be sure to check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes. You'll find videos, including the new Monster Science episodes that have been going up. You'll find blog posts, as well as links out to our social media accounts, uh, such as... Facebook and Twitter. We're Blow the Mind on both of those, and we are stuffed to Blow Your
1: Mind on Tumblr. And if you want to write to us and let us know your favorite appearance of ghouls in literature or uh, your favorite scientific fact about scavenging or cannibalism or any other eating of corpse flesh, you can email us at BlowTheMindAtHowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. What